If you've browsed Netflix in the last few weeks, there's one film that's always trending, Contagion. It's got an amazing cast, Kate Winslet, Lawrence Fishburne, Brian Cranston, and our very own Matt Damon. That's not why it's so popular though. Approximately one in 12 people on the planet will contract the disease. Contagion tells the story of a deadly virus that explodes into a global pandemic. Nine years after its release, in the midst of our own very real pandemic, it is eerie to watch this story unfold on screen. How familiar it all is now with its talk of bat DNA, social distancing and epidemiology. R stands for the reproductive rate of the virus. As scientists scramble to contain the virus, society begins to crumble under an avalanche of conspiracy theories and fake cures. In the movie, this paranoia is pushed by a blogger played by Jude Law. This is for Scythia. I've been taking it since the onset of the symptoms. In real life, well, it's someone else. I happen to be taking it. Hydroxychloroquine. I'm taking it. Hydroxychloroquine. Right now, yeah. In 2011, the presidency of Donald Trump was something no one could predict. That includes contagion screenwriter Scott Z. Burns. I could never in a million years have thought that the leadership of the United States would push fake cures, would suppress information. This podcast is about contagion, coronavirus, and the strange way reality has diverged from what was expected. In some ways, Contagion is a typical Hollywood disaster movie, but it's no day after tomorrow. The disaster it depicts is totally realistic with accurate science. Why did Scott want to do the movie this way? He told me his interest goes way back to conversations he had with his dad, a psychologist who Scott says had the heart of a scientist. And certainly the head of a scientist. And in the early aughts, my father and I would talk about you know, the likelihood or the inevitability of a virus. At the time, I think the, the scary thing that we would most frequently talk about was avian flu, and that at some point it would, it would jump into the, the human species. And when I grew up, I saw that movie Outbreak. 1995's hit movie Outbreak, starring Dustin Hoffman and the monkey from Friends. Many people are dying and are going to continue to die unless we find this monkey. There will be panic. But I think even as a kid, I sensed that the end of it was a little too easy. Steven Soderbergh and I were finishing the movie The Informant with Matt Damon. And Steven looked at me and said, what do you want to do next? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated with what an outbreak, a really a global pandemic would look like now. And if we look at, at globalization and travel and a lot of things that outbreak, you know, didn't tackle what it would do to our system. And I found myself in Ian's office. Well, the, the second time that I met Scott was in my office. This is Dr. Ian Lipkin. His memory is different. He doesn't remember the first time, which is interesting. We met on the top floor of the Mandarin Oriental in New York. Oh, that's right. We did. <laughs> <laughs> Look up Dr. Ian and you'll see he's a really big deal in the world of viruses. He spent his life researching and understanding them. He's worked on containing outbreaks of Ebola and SARS, so he was the right person to ask for fictional virus advice over a few cocktails. First time I had a Moscow meal, probably the last time too, because I think they're too sweet. We made an agreement that I was very happy to make, which was I want to do something that is scientifically credible. 
And that's when you decided to come visit me in my office. But Scott faced some stiff competition. There was somebody else who came to see me who also wanted to meet in the very same bar at the top of the Mandarin Oriental. And this was somebody who was working with a much more, I would say better known, but more sort of flamboyant director. And I heard about what they wanted to do with this thing, which was to turn it into Blade Runner. And I said, nah, I don't think so. You know, one of the great things Ian told me early on when we were working on creating a plausible virus, I said, well, you have to tell me what's possible. And he sort of laughed and said, you know, look at the world, look at nature. The fictional virus Ian helped Scott bring to the screen in Contagion was called MEV1. The mortality rate is fluctuating between 25 and 30 percent, depending upon underlying medical conditions. MEV1 is a lot deadlier than coronavirus, but there are a lot of similarities. Like the coronavirus, its origin is murky, but we know it involves animals. Somewhere in the world, the wrong pig met up with the wrong bat. As we, we reach into parts of the world that we've never been before, and so people come in contact with things they've never come in contact before. MEV1 spreads from human to human, much like coronavirus, through respiratory droplets, and because we can't stop touching our faces. Two or three thousand times a day, three to five times every waking minute. The way it breaks into our cells is eerily familiar. Like a key slipping into a lock. And the human reaction to the outbreak is predictably mixed. There's heroism and sacrifice, and cowardice, cheating, and violence. People will panic. The virus will be the least of our worries. Help me. Get away from there. Get away. The truth of it is what's terrifying and what's relevant, not the fiction of it. As you'd expect for someone in his line of work, Dr. Ian got involved in the effort to understand the new coronavirus at a very early stage. You weren't as surprised as a lot of people to see a pandemic like this. What was your first, when did you first hear about it and when did you first get involved in kind of investigating it? So I heard about it on December 15th from a colleague uh, in China who's part of a network that I direct. And I talked to people at the CDC and they didn't release any information to me at the time. I don't know what they knew then. So I'm sitting in a place called Joe's Pub, New Year's Eve, watching a very good band. And I got a call from the head of the CDC who says, we've discovered that this pneumonia is due to a, a new type of coronavirus. And, but don't worry about it. It's really not very transmissible. Mm. And that didn't make a lot of sense, given the amount of uh, morbidity and mortality that I was hearing about. But the earliest that I could get out to China was the second week in January. But it was clear from the moment that I arrived, because I flew through Beijing, that within China, there was a completely different view of this than what was being discussed on the outside. And Wuhan was locked down, and the very sorts of isolation techniques that we are now using here were already implemented, except that they did better. Because within a family, if somebody was infected, the other people were separated from that individual. This is how they got it under control. And their testing was ramped up much more rapidly than ours was. When you returned to the States then, what did you make of the American response? When I was still in China, I heard from Amazon and they were having difficulties in Europe. Ironically, when I came back into the US on the 4th of February, 
the only flights that were being suspended into the U.S., the inbound flights, were from China. Nobody was paying any attention to Europe whatsoever, despite the fact that there was a large outbreak in Italy. And uh, I was not ill, didn't become ill, as, you know, as a result of my trip to China. But in the two weeks thereafter, as I was traveling around New York City, trying to get this message across at various television stations and cable outlets, I became sick with a European variant. So all the, all the virus that's been distributed through the U.S., with the exception of the first wave in Seattle, came through Europe. A contrast, the Chinese response with ours. It sounds like you're saying China responded to the outbreak a lot better than the United States. How did it come to that when the United States had such a head start? In the years that followed SARS, I and others went there. We built the infrastructure up in China to the point where people focus on facts. They had enough money to do whatever they needed to do. They built surveillance. At the same time, in the United States, there were two surveillance committees that were established. One was under George Bush. The second was under Obama. We reviewed all of the plans for surveillance, pointed out all the weaknesses. There wasn't any buildup of these resources under Obama, frankly, and they were further dismantled under Trump. So that when this thing emerged, it was like any other situation, like when you have a fought a war on your own, your own soil since the mid-1800s, you don't take it seriously. So we were not prepared. The CDC was once a premier organization. It is not a premier organization anymore. They don't have personnel. They've got beautiful buildings, but they are not state-of-the-art. If you look at who actually ran some of these recent outbreak investigations, American presence has been modest. The Chinese have been there. The Europeans have been there. You probably know that uh, an Irishman is the one who actually runs the Global Outbreak Alert Response Network. That's Mike Ryan, who lives in Galway. So we've really been sidelined in many ways. So we don't have the infrastructure to respond as we should. We still have very, very good scientists, but we're not what we once were. Because of all we've done, the risk to the American people remains very low. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. And this is their new hoax. It could have been stopped right where it came from, China. Unfortunately, they didn't decide to make it public. We're going to start uh, our rallies back up now. We've had a tremendous uh, run at rallies. I don't think there's been an empty seat and since we came down on the escalator. The science is spot on in the film. The one thing that I don't think you predicted would be the person spreading fake cures would be the president. And in fact, I, I read an interview with you very early on where you talked about how you deliberately didn't have a president in the film because you wanted to focus on the CDC and the, the bureaucrats, civil servants and scientists. Yeah, you know, because I went to the CDC in 2009 and the people there were, were, were fantastic. And you really had a sense being with them that they were, they were monitoring the world 
on your behalf. Um, and so I could not in a million years have anticipated that the good scientists who I met um, would be confronted with an administration in this country that first ignored this. Um, you just heard Ian say when the head of the CDC contacted him, I think you can assume that the president of the United States knew about it then or before, because there are obviously people in the intelligence community who would have reached out to him. Um, and so I really hope people, you know, around the world, you know, recognize that this was a conscious choice on the part of this administration not to do what needed to be done in a timely fashion. And they were warned. And I could never in a million years have thought that the leadership of the United States would move against the World Health Organization, would turn a blind eye, would, would push fake cures, would suppress information, um, would fail to take a leadership position. I expected a compassionate, rapid, science-based, apolitical response from everybody in this country. You know, there was nothing in my research that suggested a response um, as inadequate as the one that we've seen. You're, what you're talking about there, I guess, is whereas he got the science and the public health side of it really, really right, the political environment is so different from a decade ago. It seems like now every position is politicized around the world, but particularly in the States. And dipped in conspiracy theories that, again, are going to get a lot of people sick and hurt and are, you know, are not grounded in science. And again, you know, there's a, a problem we have, at least in the States, where, you know, science is, in a sense, a field where you're wrong for sometimes a very long time before you find out what's going on. I mean, that's what the empirical method asks of you. And what is frightening to me is our ignorance even around the way basic science is done. I mean, in China, they don't evidently have a word for expert. Um, their word is someone who is still learning. And I think that that's a really great way to describe a scientist because that's what, that's what the act of science is. And it scares me right now that, you know, in, in the rush for a vaccine or medication or what we saw with hydroxychloroquine, um, people are going to be wrong a number of times before they're right. And if we decide to punish science for doing what it needs to do, which is experiment and take time and study and double check and peer review, we are going to screw ourselves even further. Do you feel pessimistic, optimistic for how this is going to play out over the next year? The thing that I'm most focused on right now is trying to do whatever I can to ensure that we have a change of administration. That occupies more of my time, frankly, than thinking about COVID. The economic, cultural, medical, you know, you, you name it, intellectual devastation associated with, you know, the presidency. Um, they, there's no way I could possibly overstate the damage that's occurred. It's heartbreaking to me that we have a scientist that's as good as Ian 
and it's so hard for him to do science in this country um, that he has to turn his attention to, you know, to politics. That's heartbreaking and, and wasteful for the entire world. You want people with that level of experience and talent, you know, doing science. In reality and in the movie Contagion, we're obsessed with the development of a vaccine. I don't want to spoil Contagion any more than I already have, so I won't talk to Ian and Scott about that plot point. But I do want to get Ian's expert opinion on a coronavirus vaccine. What is going to happen, you know, is a crystal ball question. I can tell you what I think is going to happen. There are at least 100 vaccines that are being made now worldwide. There are five that have been selected as the most likely to go forward in the United States. I have confidence in at least three of them based on data that I've seen. We are going to invest heavily in all five. They're all going to be running in parallel to get toward a finish line. And I think that we will have at least one, maybe more, for the end of the year. And we will start doing vaccinations uh, in large scale sometime after the beginning of the year, if not before. The real question is going to be, how are we going to provide all these vaccines to the nine plus billion people on the planet? I can see how we can get 320 million doses for the United States, but until such time as everyone is vaccinated, everyone is vulnerable. So we need a vaccine. And until we have a vaccine, the world is not going to get back. I am thrilled to hear Ian feel that optimistic about vaccines because I think he's right. That's really the only way we're going to get all the way back. But there's also going to be more of these, you know. Um, there's a little Ebola outbreak going on right now as well. There are other diseases that aren't, you know, they don't take time off. And we need to, you know, think about that we spend so much money in this country on military defense. Um, but, you know, we just saw 100,000 people die in a few months, um, you know, more than in many wars that we fought. And our government really didn't move, you know, heaven and earth to defend the people. It's much too early to say how the coronavirus pandemic will affect the future. Will it be a turning point when societies recognize the value of science and truth? Or will we look back on this period as a step along the road to something darker? It's Friday. Let's end on a lighter note. So on, on behalf of, of Irish celebrity watchers everywhere, how did you predict that Matt Damon would be a feature of our pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've had the good fortune of working with Matt on, on four films, I think now. Every time we sort of have this conversation about, you know, whether or not I, I should kill him. Um, <laughs> And I didn't kill him in Born. I didn't kill him in The Informant. We, we killed a lot of other famous people in Contagion. Um, but I purposefully left Matt alive, knowing <laughs> even then that he would be able to find his way to Ireland and keep you all company. As a loyal citizen of Boston, there's no better place for him to have been. I, was, I, was I spoke to him a number of times while he was there. He really loved it there. I was like, I, I want to quarantine in Ireland. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate that. And thanks for your time. 
and um, I really enjoyed, even though I was slightly shaken this time round, rewatching Contagion. Um, uh, tell Matt Damon to come back over here again for a visit, and and he can come with him. Um, I'm sure he will, and I hope I do too. Thanks again to screenwriters Scott C. Burns and Dr. Ian Lipkin. The podcast was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Declan Connor. You're listening to the Irish Times.